Good morning. Go over a couple of announcements. Number one, offering uh, envelopes in the offering box. And Andrea is still our contact number. We still have days of praise and acts and facts in the vestibule. Uh, we do have our offering envelopes. Uh, I don't know where we put them. We put them somewhere back there, so we've got to dig them up. And we will be resuming our evening service tonight. Again, it's 6 p.m., so please bring drinks and a dish to pass. Do we have any uh, comments or announcements from the, the group today? Uh, something to pray about? Most of you all know by now the uh, we're all saddened by the passing of Dawn's husband, Jossum. Uh, there was already a funeral for him. Uh, you guys have an update and status on how Donna's doing and what her plans are? That's en that's encouraging, yeah. sister. Now, we understand that she was supposed to be making a trek back home. When her contract is up.
change. Well, she merits our continued prayers that uh, she gets along because uh, there's a number of us who now know what loss is about in a, in a family, uh, losing a spouse. So her continued prayers. Uh, anyone else? Uh, any other updates or anything on other members? George? there was it was so packed there was only standing room for most of the people and Jared and uh, and uh, Jess were there the uh, gentleman that uh, gave the uh, eulogy was uh, I think a retired Baptist pastor and uh, he did quite well I thought we were wondering at first when he started off and uh, but uh, he, he brought a, a bit of a salvation message and uh, challenged the individuals. Just because you're good people, that doesn't mean you're going to heaven or or not. And uh, uh, he brought up the fact that Dave had attended his church on numerous occasions and and uh, the like. So again, we we will only know in in glory who was there and who didn't make the cut. So. But do, do pray for Bob Sommerfeld as well. Uh, he's, what, 77 now, 78? Oh, he's in his 80s now. We'll go with Sheila's assessment. <laughs> yeah. But Bob is... Bob is uh, for all intents and purposes, unsaved, and uh, he's a tremendously honorable individual, and and uh, in most ways morally upright, but he just doesn't know the Lord, and uh, we would do well to keep him in our prayer list as well. Okay, if there's no other comments or questions, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Job. Chapter 4, and that'll be page 792 in your pew Bibles.
Would you stand with us as we begin our morning prayer and service? Elder Clayton, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer? Yes, sir. Our Lord, again, you come on this Lord's Day morning. Thankful for this place that you provided us. Comfortable place uh, here in this building and also this place. Can you take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 59? <clears throat> number 59 in the brown. Thank you. 
same question every week. Anyone have a favorite hymn? picks all the hymns. These are his favorite <laughs> hymns. <laughs> oh, Elizabeth, I did not see your hand. Elizabeth, which hymn would you like to sing? They will know we are Christians by our love. Why do you want to sing this song? Just because you like it? Okay, it's a good song. And I think... It's two eight. Yep, two eight four in the brown. scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, and that'll be page 1516 
in your pew Bibles. When you arrive to that, please stand with us. Matthew 13. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. <clears throat> For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 87. Turn to 87 in the brown.
Our scripture text this morning is Matthew 13. Thank you all for praying for me. I am doing better, not completely healed, but not contagious. So that's why I'm here. In case you've never had shingles, some of you might have had. It's it's a very red hot rash that burns all the time, and um, I still know it's there <laughs> in my back, but it's much much better. And thank you for your prayers. And the families come in with all kinds of remedies and some of them work and some of them didn't but I'm here today in praising the Lord about it now last Lord's Day we began a new series entitled God the gospel that Jesus preached primarily concentrating on the kingdom parables the parable we considered was that of the wedding banquet king invited many who turned him down with lame excuses even abused and killed his messengers, the armies of the king were sent to destroy those murderers. And then the invitation of the king went out to anyone who was willing to come to the wedding of his son. Those invited to the wedding were given the proper wedding garments to wear. But those who refused to put on the righteousness of Christ were cast out. The point being that many are called, but few are chosen. Now the account we are looking at today deals with probably the most familiar parable that Jesus ever taught, and that is the parable of the sower. 
The familiarity of this parable makes it difficult to preach on because everybody has a preconceived notion as to what it means. And so they say to themselves, well, I already know about this parable. Let's just move on. But there are some gems here which are seldom touched on and important considerations often overlooked even by those who deal with the text. I'm not one who likes to overlook the difficult passages. One of my pet peeves is to be working through a passage and to come to a very difficult verse. And then when I look it up in the commentaries, those that I respect, I discover that they skip over the verse completely. George is nodding his head, so he's had that happen to him too. And there's no explanation. Now, if everyone did that, how would we discover the meaning of a text? The things God reveals to us in his word are for our understanding. That doesn't mean that we don't have to put some study and thought into the learning process. Parable of the sower falls into this category. As to its basic meaning, there's absolutely no doubt. Why? Well, because in verse 18 and following, Jesus says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. Wow. What follows is the divine interpretation given by the lips of Christ himself. Now, let me tell you something. You can't do any better than that. You can't. And you can't get it any easier. Here's what it means, Jesus says. Now that's totally different from the kingdom parable on the wedding banquet, which talked about a king and the wedding of his son, the messengers he sent out, the response of the invited guests. How did I know that the king in the parable of the son the parable represented God and his son Jesus. Well, how did I know that the servants represented his ministers or messengers? I learned these things by comparing scripture with scripture and discovering the text on the wedding banquet of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. And I did a quick perusal of other kingdom parables to get a feel for the main thrust of what was being said and I picked up on the language of the improperly dressed guests being cast out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is an expression that is used by Jesus repeatedly to describe the torments of hell. So if you can go to those other passages and you start to get a feel for what he's saying in the text you're looking at. But there are some other complementary teachings which are not so easily discerned. There's this whole section in the middle, verse 10 and following, wherein Jesus answers his disciples' question as to why he spoke to the people in parables. That's more difficult to comprehend. Another observation is this, that one beginning to read this parable would not readily know that it is a kingdom parable because that does not start with the characteristic 
statement by Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like. doesn't start that way. But if you compare verse 24, verse 31, verse 44, verse 47, these other parables all begin that way. The kingdom of heaven is like. And that lets us know that Jesus is actually talking about the kingdom of heaven. So that brings us to the parable of the sower. Our text. What we want to note firstly is that Jesus' parables or stories were taken from everyday life. Farming, vineyards, raising livestock, fishing, homestyle activities, homestyle workshops. The people of Jesus' day were not building automobiles in a factory. They weren't working on a computer behind their desk at home. Palestine was an agra-based society. This does not mean that they didn't have trades or even shops. Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, you remember, was a carpenter. Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla were tent makers. Lydia was a seller of purple fabric. So they did have their trades. It wasn't all farming. But everybody had some working knowledge of the agribusinesses. They may not have known the difference between an awl and a chisel, but they knew what farmers did and the difference between a cow and sheep. So it's not surprising that many of Jesus' stories dealt with farming and raising livestock. This is the case with the parable of the sower. Every person in Palestine had probably witnessed a farmer walking through his fields, broadcasting his seed from a shoulder bag, planting his crop with the expectation of a harvest which would net income for himself and his family. And if they weren't farmers themselves, someone in their family was. Or they knew someone who was. They may have had a taste of the task themselves as they planted their own family gardens. And so this parable becomes extremely relevant as Jesus addresses the crowd from a boat offshore, verse 1, to a gathering so large that he had to take these extreme measures to speak. They were pressing in on him so hard. So he got in a boat, went offshore so many feet, and talked to them from there. The story deals with a sower who, in broadcasting his seed in his fields, tosses the seed onto Four different types of soil. There's the hard, impacted soil, which form the various pathways along through the field where first the farmer and later the harvesters would walk and place their baskets, verse 4. Secondly, there were rocky places, verse 5. The Greek is petrodes, a derivative of petra, meaning rock. Remember, 
Peter's name is Petras, the rock. Petrodes means rock-like. It's a descriptive of landscape which have rock strata beneath the soil, which is much like a shelf of a stone. And that would explain why the roots of seeds sprouting atop such areas would not find enough depth of soil before hitting rock and thus being immediately halted in their growth. Then there's the third type of soil. And that was infested with thorns and briars, verse 7. That already had a stranglehold on the ground and the nutrients therein, making it practically impossible for any wonderful seed, any uh, nutritional seed, to grow. And finally, there was the good soil. Rich, humus, plowed, ready, free of weeds, free of rocks, not compacted, able to receive the seed sown and to provide a rich source of nutrients, air, light, water, all the ingredients necessary for an abundant harvest. So you got these different types of soils. And the emphasis of the whole text is not to talk about dirt. <laughs> the soils represent people. Different kinds of people that receive the seed. However, what they do with it is different. Now what's the meaning? Well, we're first of all confronted with the idea of the sower. The sower. Don't assume that this is Jesus because he's the one telling the story. And don't bring in the interpretation of the wedding banquet, which we studied the other week, because each parable has its own story to tell and its own points to make. The sower would include Jesus as he taught, but not only him exclusively, but anyone, pastor, preacher, missionary, common believer, who gives the word of God to sinners. The seed is mentioned in Mark 4.14. The farmer sows the word, writes Mark. You see how you figure these things out? You compare scripture with scripture. The farmer sows the word. Luke writes, Luke 8 verse 11, the seed is the word of God. Boy, that's pretty clear, isn't it? The seed is the word of God. And our text, verse 19 says, it is the message about the kingdom. So that's what the seed is. The soils stand for the hearts of men as they hear the message of the gospel. It stands for their response. Hendrickson in his commentary writes, it's the unresponsive heart, verse 19, that hard ground on the pathway. It's the impulsive heart, verse 20, on the rocky ground. Number three, it's the preoccupied heart of the thorny soil. 
And finally, number four, the good response or well-prepared heart, verse 23. And I think Hendrickson has a pretty accurate description here of what the soils represent. Now, Jesus is not talking about literal farming with literal seed of wheat or barley being sown on literal soil in some field in Palestine. He is talking about people. People. And how they respond to the preaching of the gospel. This is evident when we come to this interpretation of the parable. Will you notice that this is the main issue of the parable. The emphasis is not on the sower, nor even that much on the seed. These things are there. They are important to the understanding. That's true. But the real point is the response of the hearers. Verse 18. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. The Mark 4 text says, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Some people are like seed along the path. Others like seed sown on a rocky place. Still others like seed sown among the thorns. Others like seed sown on good soil. So Mark says it's about people, others, still others, and others again. Luke uses the word those throughout. Those, 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 those. Still talking about people, 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 people. The parable is about people and their response to the message of the gospel. So, if ever there were a text of scripture which emphasizes people's response to the gospel, here it is. Though other texts emphasize the sovereignty of God and the saving experience, here is a text which says that a person's response to what they hear, is also important. You cannot have salvation without responding to the good news of the gospel message. It's not going to come your way. If you're sitting there like a lump on the log, waiting for the Spirit to move you, the only movement you will receive is that of the birds, Satan in our text, picking the words off the hard surface of your heart as it lays there immobile and ill-used. Or the movement of shallow growth until the scorching sun bleaches your bones in the new day heat because you have no substance to your faith. Or the movement of the cares of this world as they strangle you to death with worry and fear and frustration and disbelief. Jesus is teaching the sower has a responsibility to give the gospel out, but the one on whom the message falls is responsible for his or her response. You can't blame God for your poor response. 
the poor response is your own fault. And the response of the people in the parable, I have to say, pretty much describes the response of people today who come within earshot of the gospel message. So, let's talk about that a bit. Four kinds of hearts. First response, the hard-hearted individual. That's a good way to say it. Let me read it for you. Verse 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Verse 19. Mark's gospel words of their strength. As soon as they hear it, referring to the word of God, as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word which was sown. Mark 4, verse 15. Luke tells us why Satan does this. Quote, so that they may not believe and be saved. <laughs> That's pretty clear. Luke 8, verse 13. Now don't let the repeated mention of Satan's activities distract you from the fact that Jesus is still addressing the people and their response to the gospel. Satan does not force people to do things contrary to their own will. What he does is to capitalize upon the natural sinful inclination of men's hearts. This is in our text. Matthew tells us, verse 19, Satan comes to those who do not understand the message about the kingdom which they've heard. Okay, where did they get this lack of understanding? Why don't they understand? Paul tells us, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Now, isn't that what our text is saying about this particular hearer? Whose fault is it if a person does not accept the teaching of the gospel, but considers such things, ah, that's foolishness? Well, it's his or her own fault. It's not God's fault. And it's certainly not necessarily Satan's fault, though he will certainly do his worst to see to it that the person's own innate ignorance and hostility to the gospel prevails. So is this the kind of hero you are when it comes to the gospel? The gospel comes to you in the sermon or the scriptures or the witness of a friend and it meets with strong resistance. It falls upon hard, foot-worn surfaces, and it just lays there on the surface of your heart. I think you probably have all seen the um, commercials for, uh, it's called Thompson's Water Seal. The commercial 
depicts a backyard deck in which half of the deck was treated with Thompson's water seal and then the owner ran out of the sealant so he decided to substitute another in this case inferior brand on the rest of the deck. On the Thompson side the water just beads up and lays on the surface like it should but on the other side it soaks into the wood which defeats the purpose of a seal. Jesus is saying there are people whose response to the gospel is like the wood treated with Thompson's sealant. The seed, like water, just lays on the surface. It never soaks in, it never penetrates into the heart of the individual will, and as such, it's easy pickings for Satan to fly in and gobble it up. Isn't it interesting that the devil will ingest what we will not? Satan knows well that the word of God, as it is demonstrated by this ability to quote it as he does in the temptation in the wilderness, Matthew 4. It's always quoting scriptures to Jesus. But the word of God has no redeeming effect on Satan. As a believer in the word of God, he's a devil still. And so he is doubly damned. He knows the truth, but he has rejected the truth. Two strikes and you're out, not three. But here is diabolical nature comes through. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see, they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you're a hard-hearted hearer this morning, you do not understand the gospel, but the devil understands it. He knows it to be the truth. He knows it can bring you into the light of the truth that will save you from your sin and set you free. And that's why he snatches it away. He's perishing. He wants you to perish with him. This is his diabolical nature. Jesus said of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. Murdering people is what he does. John 8 verse 44. And the snatching away of the word will assure your death and damnation. You don't respond right to it. But here's the kicker. People cooperate with him. Your hard heart, your stubborn resistance to the word of God, that's your own doing. You've been tramped on so much by others, maybe even by well-meaning but misguided Christians, that you have become cynical, you've become callous, 
towards spiritual truth or you have allowed the school of hard knocks to make you bitter. Your bitterness has closed your ears to the gospel of grace. You're fighting the efforts of the sower who has your best interests at heart. You've joined hands with the enemy of your soul. How absurd is that? Life in a sinful world is hard. But all of us experience hardship. But you have allowed the hardship to harden you. You've not fought against them. You've given in to them. You've made peace with the devil by justifying your anger. And unless you repent, you will perish along with him in his rebellion. God is not to blame for your hard heart. You are. No one else. This is the first kind of hearer. It's the person that just dares God to do something with them. They're, you know, they're, it's fist in the face of God. It's that defiance. Secondly is the impulsive heart. The impulsive heart. Look at verse 20. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once he receives it with joy. Oh, whoopee. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Wow. These are what I call the flash in the pan Christians. Fast fire followed by fizzle. They're run by their emotions. Upon hearing the message, they get all excited. They determine to turn the world upside down with this good news. They ingest anything. Biblical, that they can get their hands on. They grow quickly. Their knowledge seems to outstrip their energy level. These are exciting people to watch because phenomenal growth is their trademark. They're like Jonah's magical vine, which grew from a seedling to enormous proportions overnight and shaded him from the scorching heat of the sun. Wow. We are all struck by this process. We envy their assimilation of theology, their ability to memorize scripture, their grasp of the intricacies of the gospel. We want to make them our teachers and place them in positions of leadership. We hope to tap into some of their understanding and to profit from their quick minds and their able articulation of the gospel. But then... Something happens. 
trouble comes to these people and persecution comes because of the word of God. Just as trouble comes to anyone who believes in the Bible and tries to obey its precepts. It is as Paul warned. Everyone, writes Paul, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't sign up for persecution. Um, I don't know about this. I mean, if I am persecuted because of my faith, how can I stop the persecution? I can give up my faith. And that is what the stony ground hearer does. Verse 21. He quickly falls away. Upon hearing the gospel, he instantly receives it with joy. Verse 20. Oh wow, he's excited. Upon being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, he instantly abandons it. Hey, I didn't sign up for this. How can this happen? Verse 21. Since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. You know, a shallow root is the equivalent of no root. Look at verse 5, verse 6. Is this you this morning? Excited by the gospel, good things it promises, turned off just as quickly by the complications and problems which believing in Christ brings into your life? Luke 8, verse 15 tells us the good soil person has perseverance to produce a crop. This is what the rocky ground hearer lacks. This is why he or she is a quitter. As I say, I didn't sign up for this. No one told me about this. The third here is Mr. Distracted Heart. Luke 8, 14. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries and riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. One spring when I was weeding my flower beds, I came upon an oak tree seedling which had sprouted from an acorn, which was part of the shredded mulch that I had gotten from the city compost dump. So I just, you know, I, I just thought, well, I'm going to try to save it. So I carefully dug it up, and I replanted it in a container in which I had previously planted white pine seedling from the DNR that I got. At first it seemed to do well, but then <coughs> it just... 
it withered and died. My mistake was to plant a seedling two inches high in a container housing plants that were ten times that size. The older, more established seedlings robbed the younger, immature seedling of the light and the nutrients necessary to reach maturity. Well, Mr. Distracted Heart is like that oak seedling. The word of God falls on his heart, but there are already some other things growing in his soil. Things that are bigger, of interest to him. They command more attention from him than this, this new kid on the block. Now, it isn't that Mr. Distracted Heart has no interest in spiritual things, but rather that at present, he's no time for these things. He's distracted. He cannot seem to focus on the spiritual needs of his heart. He's all consumed with the worries of life, with making a living, with indulging himself in the pleasures of the world. His favorite expression is, well, someday, someday, someday I'm going to start attending a gospel preaching church on a consistent basis. Someday I'm going to accept Christ as my Savior. Uh, someday I'm going to study the Bible with my family and pray. Someday I plan to take a correspondence course from Toronto Baptist Seminary. But someday never comes. It never comes. Some days are yesterday's dreams and tomorrow's anticipations, but in both cases they miss the present day where life is being lived now. Now. Mark tells us that Mr. Distracted Heart is self-deceived. Yeah. <laughs> Let me read it for you. Mark 4, verse 18. The deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So what is he saying? He's saying... God's word never has a chance with a distracted heart which is preoccupied with other things. God's word is rendered unfruitful. It can't do its work. Jesus put it this way. He said a man cannot serve God and money Oh, but Mr. Distracted Heart, he tries. Only he gives the bulk of his attention to the almighty dollar. The word of God is strangled by other things as well. The love of pleasure, 
fast women, fast cars, cheap thrills, the love of power and position, the love of men's approval. These things render the word of God unfruitful. They choke out the lifeblood of the gospel message, which cannot be heard over the din of the world's riotous drone. Something else is ringing in my ear, and it is in God's word. gospel finds no place in the unrepentant heart. Repentance means you cannot keep your sin and believe savingly in Jesus too. The sin has to go. The things of the world have to go. Mr. Distracted Heart lets nothing go. He tries to hang on to it all and simply add the gospel to what he already possesses. But like a heavy laden ship on a stormy sea, which is taking in water, Mr. Distracted Heart will go down into the deep with all of his belongings for failure to throw overboard all the excess baggage which drags him to perdition. He can't let it go. Is this you this morning? Distracted. Got your sights on other things. It's always someday. Someday I'm going to get right with God. But someday never comes. Then finally we have the account of the good soil. We read the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word and retain it and by persevering produce a crop. Luke 8 verse 15. The other writers tell us the crop will vary 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Mark 4 verse 20. That's what we expect from sown seed. I plant one seed, but I expect a lot more than one seed to grow. I expect the plant to produce a lot more than that. That's found in the good heart. And unlike the hard heart, the good heart hears the word. It doesn't just lay there on the surface for the devil to snatch it away. He retains the gospel. He doesn't give up on Christ when the going gets rough like the rocky soil hearer did and the good soil hearer perseveres with Jesus and relinquishes his love of the world and its allurements unlike Mr. Distracted Heart. No wonder there's a good crop produced. A harvest of blessing to reap a future of eternal life. Everything wicked, everything troubling, Everything alluring, everything seductive, everything distracting. It strikes Mr. Good Soil just as it does every other hearer of the story. 
The difference is his reaction. He sticks with God and gains his soul. The others abandon God and forfeit their soul to lesser things. Now, brethren, this is the gospel that Jesus preached. And even that falls on deaf ears. Your choices matter. The path you choose to follow matters. Things like hearing, things like obeying the gospel call to repentance and faith, those things matter. Right responses to the seed of truth cast upon the soil of your heart and mind matters. Allowing the heart and to hit be affected by the truth and to take root in your heart before the vultures pick it clean. That matters. Paul words it this way. Today. Today. If you hear God's call, do not harden your heart. The hard heart is that hard pathway where the word cannot penetrate. People do that to themselves. Moses wrote it this way, God's spirit will not always strive with men. In other words, he may abandon you to your unbelief. You don't want that. If God gives up on you, you're lost. Every time you're convicted, every time you're challenged by the gospel account, every time you're warned, every time your conscience makes you have a sleepless night, Good, good, good for you. God hasn't given up on you. But if you reach the point in your life where you have no time for God whatsoever and you're not going to listen to anything he has to say in the word of God, if in fact you walk around like this, like the kids do and they don't want to hear what the other kid is saying to them Moses says 
I am, I'm going to tell you, the Spirit of God will not always strive with you. He'll let you, na 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 na, na and let it, you go where that disbelief takes you. It's a wonderful thing to be bothered by God. Because he doesn't strive with all men. Not even not, not all men even hear the word of God in terms of the gospel presentation. That's why we're involved in missions. There are places in this world that have never heard the gospel preached. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know who the God of heaven is. They have their idols. They have their satanic demons that they worship. But they don't know anything about the God of the Bible. They're left to perish. You're not. You're blessed with a country in which the gospel is preached. Don't harden your heart. Father, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. And it is an encouragement to us that you don't let us alone. You don't just abandon us. So thankful for that. If you were to leave us alone, we would perish in our sins. The evil one would come right in there and help us perish with him. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning, which means murdering people is what he likes doing. Taking them to hell with him, he likes doing. That is his wicked plan all along. He's a loser, wants the rest of us to be losers. And I pray that you will deliver us from his enticements and grant us instead a repentant heart that Jesus might be perfectly wonderful to us that we might seek his face, trust him in his shed blood to cover our sins, even the sin of rebellion, even the sin of a hard heart. Lord, do this for us, for the glory of Jesus, for the advancement of your kingdom, we pray. Amen. From Trinity Hymnal, Let's sing 145.
Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God, the sword of the spirit that it is. And sometimes the sword cuts us in ways that are convicting, and that's good. It brings healing. It's like the surgeon's scalpel that cuts out the cancerous parts of our body. It brings life to where death was imminent. So I pray that we will rejoice in the truth of your word, cutting though it may be. Lord, help us to love your word and to love the fact that it doesn't compromise the truth. It tells it like it is, to use an expression of our day. And I pray, Lord, that the word of God will seek, seep through us and help us to see the great truth of the gospel <clears throat> that Jesus preached. It's a far cry from what we're hearing in a lot of circles today. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see the difference and accept what you're doing in our lives. Transform us, Lord. Make us like yourself. To the praise and glory of Jesus, we pray these things with thanksgiving. Amen. We are dismissed. Don't forget tonight, 6 o'clock.